Welcome back to the Christmas special. You are listening to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club. So I thought that in light of coming into summer in the the Southern Hemisphere, now might be a good opportunity for me to rifle through my Australasian medical gazettes from the late 1800s. And I have an article here from 1891 in May entitled Case of Snake Bite Treated with Strychnine. It's by L.S. Holmes. On March 11th, I was sent for to attend Mrs. Fraser at St. Leonard's near Launceston for snake bite and arrived about an hour after she'd been bitten. Condition, pulse, fairly strong, pupils contracted, almost unconscious, pain on swallowing in a half comatose condition, had been bitten on outer side of right leg, about two inches above the ankle. The two punctures were easily seen. Ammonia had been rubbed on and a ligature tied above the wound, but too loose to be of any service. From the general condition, I thought it would be too late for the ammonia treatment, and so decided to inject liquid strychnia, British pharmacopoeia, having previously read an account of Dr. Mueller's experiments, but not having time to get his formula made up, I took with me liquid strychnia. At 12.30pm when I first arrived, I scored the wound, and I put on a half dozen leeches, I injected 15 minims of liquid strychnia. At 12.40, I injected another 10 minims. At 1.10, 15 minims, and continued injecting 15 minims every half hour till 3.10 p.m. At 4 p.m., I injected 10 minims and five, a similar quantity. A few minutes after the last dose, I first noticed the physiological action of the strychnia and then desisted injections. Whilst the patient was under treatment, she had continuous fits of vomiting and retching. After the second injection, she became more lively, commencing to sing, and the liveliness continued until she became conscious about 3 p.m. From the first, I kept the patient very quiet, sitting with both legs raised upon the couch. I would not allow those with her to move her about in any way, her friends simply holding her in a sitting position. But when she began to regain consciousness, I permitted her to lie down. At 8 p.m., she seemed much better. The pupils were nearly normal size and responded readily to the effect of light and dark. Was not sleepy, could swallow brandy and milk easily. I may mention that during the whole time I gave her brandy and water when I could get her to swallow it. At 8 p.m., she was put to bed but kept awake until 3 a.m. next morning. When she was allowed to sleep, but she did not sleep soundly. March 12th, patient improving, put her on ordinary tonic treatment, milk and broth, leg very painful, blue marks like bruises where injections have been used. The wounds made by lance and leeches were the worst and I do not hesitate to say that I would neither use lance nor leech in a case again, nor could I advise their use. March 13, patient still improving, but slightly hysterical. March 14th, still improving. March 28th, cured. I just think it's such a bizarre article to read, knowing that that was the treatment they had for snake bite back in the 1800s. I was just laughing throughout. (laughs) 
because he was literally making it up as he went along and like it really goes to show that i mean that's basically what we we're doing for so many years and decades right and really probably the medical profession for so long was not really too dissimilar to naturopathy or any other form of discredited science i agree some of that was on the fly but these remedies seem to be pretty commonplace the most common topic by far in these australasian medical gazettes that i seem to have acquired is snake bites and the most common remedies are definitely strychnine. Brandy is very common. You give five-year-olds brandy frequently for snake bite and uh, ammonia. It's just interesting though, right? Because like I'm sure naturopaths have like common herbs that they use compared to like uncommon herbs that they use. You know what I mean? Just like we use amoxicillin more commonly than we use, I don't know, kefepime or something. Similarly, in those days, there was just common remedies. But you can kind of see the observation bias happening throughout this 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 write-up, right? Like he just sort of presumed that because she got better, his interventions worked, or some of them. And then he presumed that because the wounds got worse, some of his interventions didn't work. Probably to a certain extent at that time, observation is all they had. But it shows what happens when you lack a control or some sort of balancing factor, because you, then you can never really know what the impact of what you've done is. Yeah, I mean, it shows a poor understanding of research, but I guess in the 1800s, I probably probably can't blame them for, for not appreciating randomised controlled trials. You know, there's another a similar article that's in, the, in them where they, they sent for the nearest, he didn't have strychnine on him, and so they sent for the nearest medical practitioner who advised that they would be there in, you know, five hours by train. <laughs> it's just the most absurd thing. Um, it's just, it's remarkable how far we've come and I mean, a couple of hundred years is really in, in the scheme of things, not not that long. But, but, but a couple I of generations. You know, to counter your point, Shreyas, you know, there were experiments that were done with strychnine. I agree. I don't know how robust the science was, but at least, you know, there was a thought that maybe something that had been analysed rather than assumed. These books are actually fascinating. There's um, a number of articles... I was reading a little bit of a list before, but uh, uh, there's things like an article on the influenza bacillus, where someone had done a hematoxylin and eosin stain and, and found this bacillus that they felt was influenza, but only if the patient was pyrexial. There's articles on the electric bath and its indication in medicine, a leprosy bill for New South Wales, a case of asthma treated by hypnotic suggestion, notes on Australia and smallpox. It's really an interesting read. Uh, maybe I'll uh, read some more excerpts uh, in the uh, podcasts to come over the next year. That's a fair call. I guess the reason that we came the way that we came instead of just continuing to practice blind medicine is because of the mindset. And, you know, clearly a lot of what they were doing was just doing the best that they could in information and technology free environment. And so, yeah, no, it's definitely not judgment on my part, but it's just, it's fascinating to see the approach back then and contrast it to, I guess, maybe the, the rigor, but also the scrutiny of, of, you know, the way that we practice now. It's, it's just an evolution, but you're right. Like ultimately, you know, they were at least applying some sort of principle of, you know, do something, test the impact of it, write it up and share knowledge. And clearly, you know, a proper scientific movement eventually grew out of that. So I'm really a big fan of the idea that, you know, you have this like semi-delirious woman just sitting around and the doctor is like, nah, take another shot of brandy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like nah, this will make you better. Like, 18 girls in a bar or something. 
I believe it was measured in minims then, Harry, and not shots. But but I think that still stands. I mean, you need analgesia, right? I presumed that was what the brandy was for. Do we know if there's any sort of pathophysiology or reasoning behind the treatment? And do you think it worked or was it just luck that she got better? Pramod, what on earth is strychnine? And does it have a place in snake bite? Does it work? Is there a theoretical benefit to it? Thanks for unearthing such an interesting article, Kit, and I'll endeavour to answer some of these questions. I think it's important to acknowledge that the history of snake bites is tied in intimately to the history of medicine, history of colonialism, and our understanding of the human body, and so it's always a fascinating lens through which we can look at our progress as a profession over the millennia, as you identify, Shreyas. Some of these treatments seem less strange when you take a step back and take into account the scientific and philosophical notions of health that were around in the mid-1800s. Needless to say, misunderstandings abounded and there are various examples in the literature. So a good one that I like to remember is a certain Mr. John Burstall, a Victorian manure merchant, who actually brought his defanged cobra, which he had purchased in Sri Lanka, to the Tanker Temperance Hotel in Melbourne. He, in front of various admirers, let the snake bite him in order to demonstrate that the venom was benign which then led him to become envenomed, and he died shortly after. And this led to a massive scandal in Melbourne and led to renewed interest in the nature of venom. Now, from this particular incident, extrapolations, wild extrapolations were made that venom, particularly cobra venom, was responsible for things such as the cholera outbreak in India, leading to you know, mass culling of snakes in the subcontinent. When European settlers initially arrived in Australia, they thought snakes were pretty innocuous and really only understood snakes as being venomous, poisonous creatures through their observation of snake bites in animals, dogs, cats and sheep. And the observation of these consistent snake bite syndromes led people to then experiment. And colonial Australia was rife with vivisections and experimentations in the community. Now, to the treatments that you described uh, in the article, unless you're employed as an assassin, strychnine is a potent neurotoxin that really has no role in acute medicine today or in medicine in general. It's an antagonist to glycine and acetylcholine and causes a pretty well-characterized syndrome of tachycardia, seizures, hypertension, rhabdomyolysis, renal failure, cardiac arrest. There being no antidote, it's obviously a significant poison and is a plant-derived poison at that. Speaking about your case specifically and thinking about the way strychnine interacts with the human body, perhaps the injection of intravenous strychnine might account for some of the hysteria that was experienced by your patient through the observations over the days after its administration. Many settlers and indigenous cultures considered venom to be an external poison. And so if you understand this and take into account some of the understanding of medicine physiologically at that time, maybe puts into context the use of some of these antidotes uh, that were present at the time. So, for example, given that it was an external poison, measures such as physical ligatures or suction or even in some cases excision of skin around the bite site were thought to be effective. And I suppose that that developed into what we now use as pressure bandage immobilization and immobilization of patients in general. The second strand of treatments, if, if I can call it that, were remedies including mustard and strychnine and ammonia and brandy, and they were thought to counteract the venom's effects on the body, with venom being thought to be a depressant and a paralytic. And so strychnine and ammonia and brandy were thought to stimulate the humours of the heart and the brain and blood and improve blood flow and therefore counteract the systemic effects of venom. This is obviously not true, but that was the thinking at the time which led to these treatments being employed. 
Ammonia specifically was thought to neutralize the venom itself and so was commonly poured over wounds um, and then transitioned to intravenous or intramuscular administration, neither of which were very effective. And then the failure of this through multiple observations led to strychnine and brandy being the two most common quote-unquote antidotes being used in the context of envenomation in the mid-1800s. Yeah, thanks for that, Pramod. What about the use of the venom detection kit? I mean, it sounds to me as though it's fallen out of vogue recently because of the complexity of reading it and how dependent it is on personnel. Is that completely true or do we still use venom detection kits country or is, is there a role for them? Now, to answer your question about venom detection kits, I think it ties into the overarching approach to snake bites, which we use today. Now, if I had to really simplify it down to its core principles, I say there's probably three parts to managing snake bites. The first one being good first aid. And so that involves, you know, immobilization and pressure bandage application. Then the next step is the diagnosis of envenomation. And the diagnosis of envenomation is a threefold process. So you've got symptoms depending on the snake that's bitten you. You've then got your history and examination. History might provide you certain geographical details. And, you know, if there is uh, characteristic markings on the snake, that might assist. And blood tests, um, which may demonstrate rhabdomyolysis or elevated lactates, renal failure, various uh, manifestations of envenomation can be, um, can be diagnosed on blood tests, such as VIC. And then the third step is the diagnosis of the snake species. Now, Due to the rate of false negatives and false positive tests, uh, the venom detection kit sort of fell out of use, um, in addition to what you correctly said kit with uh, user dependency being a big problem and time delays. So what we ended up finding was due to our improved understanding of snake bite syndromes, better characterization of the distribution of snake species throughout Australia, the venom detection kit became less of an aid and more of a confounder to the early administration of appropriate treatment. And so we can see, and I think this trend has probably taken off more so in the last 10 to 15 years, um, the venom detection kits have certainly fallen out of favour in their use clinically. And so we rarely use them now, and I don't think we even really stock them anymore at Westmead Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Email us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com with your thoughts and comments.